Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Hong Litu, Deputy Director of the Asia Program at the International Crisis Group and Adjunct Fellow with the Southeast Asia Program at CSIS and a former Senior Fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. They discuss Vietnam's foreign policy amid great power competition. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Jude Blanchett, to look at the chessboard today, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, the geopolitics as it looks from Hanoi. We're joined by Dr. Hong Le Tu, who is Deputy Director of the Asia Program at the International Crisis Group. I think this is her first podcast or public outing in that new role. Congratulations. She's the author of two recent essays in foreign affairs, How to Survive a Great Power Competition, Southeast Asia's Precarious Balancing Act, and Hanoi's American Hedge, Why a New U.S. Partnership is Unlikely to Change Vietnam's Multi-Alignment Strategy. Welcome to the Asia Chessboard. Thank you, Mike. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I'm a great fan of Asia Chessboard, so very pleased to be here. That's always good to hear, and you're going to bring up our game a whole level, I'm sure. We always like to start, as you know, by understanding how you got here. Where'd you grow up? What'd you do? What got you interested in international affairs and geopolitics? So my academic and research interest, I think, had been conditioned in somewhat by my personal background. So I was born in the post-war Vietnam, where some would say it's already, you know, post-war, so it shouldn't have been that bad. But actually, the decades following the end of the war with U.S. was actually the most despair time in Vietnam, defined by poverty and really isolation in international arena with collapse of the Soviet Union and just Vietnam's lack of friends and close that off from the world. So that sense of being isolated, even abandoned by friends, I think shaped a lot of Vietnamese thinking up until today. And because I had a chance to go to Europe around that time and really my first time arriving in Poland, which was because of the Eastern Bloc, we arrived there just a week before the Berlin Wall collapse. And I was still quite young then, but that really, I think, defined my interest to the world, to the politics, international relations. And and ever since I pursued this discipline, and that's why I went to do PhD in international relations, because really in the politics, what we consider high politics, define people's life and people's life choices and and their paths. So it in a way defined mine as well. My interest in Asia was also affected by my presence in Europe and how the European Union was evolving and developing and expanding and then also becoming to include Poland. And at that time, I look at Southeast Asia through the lenses of a collective ASEAN and how ASEAN also transformed Vietnam and other continental Southeast Asia as well. So from that perspective, I just drilled in deeper and kept my interest in the regional affairs in Southeast Asia and its role in the world in particular. Where did you do your PhD? 
So I did my PhD actually in Taiwan. I got a scholarship and I learned Chinese Mandarin. I had a chance to pursue PhD there. Also, because of my background growing up in different countries and learning different languages, I wanted to learn Chinese at the time and an opportunity to do research and study in Taiwan while learning also Chinese seemed to be a good one then. And you moved to Australia and worked for ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and with Gordon Flake at the Perth US Asia Center, and now you're in Queensland, but working on Southeast Asia for the International Crisis Group. You've been all over the world looking at Southeast Asia from outside of Southeast Asia, haven't you? Yes, and before going to Australia, I actually work in Singapore at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, now Yusof Ishak Institute, before going to Australia and looking at the region from the more Indo-Pacific lenses. So right now at the International Crisis Group, the role will be beyond Southeast Asia, but looking at the broader Asia and hopefully bringing more of the geopolitical analysis to uh, early warning analysis, very different definition of conflicts, but also looking at the early warnings and, and the crisis are bubbling beneath the threshold of conflict. Right. The International Crisis Group was set up by uh, Morta Bromwitz and Gareth Evans. And I used to, I worked with Morta CFR before he started it. And he was frustrated by think tanks that admire problems. He wanted to set up with a crisis group, a think tank that would jump in before problems exploded. So it's a pretty intense job. Good luck. You have a new baby too, right? <laughs> That's right. It's keeping me very busy. <laughs> yeah. Every day is an international crisis at home with a new baby, right? <laughs> Multiple ones. <laughs> so your career and your professional affiliations around the world have really helped you situate Southeast Asia and Vietnam in the larger geopolitical context. But Vietnam is geopolitical. It's in the DNA. It is a country that I love to visit. I went to Hanoi before Pham Van Kai, the premier of Vietnam at the time in 2005, made his first trip for a summit with the U.S. president, with President Bush. And it was a fascinating and complicated mix of human rights and democracy issues, competition, geopolitics. And I've always felt that with the exception of Singapore, maybe the most interesting geopolitical discussions are in Vietnam. It's in the DNA. I love the expression. You sometimes hear that Vietnam has shaped the way it is from 3000 years of China on its back. And you get that sense when you're in Hanoi or having discussions about the region. But how would you characterize the strategic culture, the outlook of Vietnam today? How much of it is sort of historical experience competing with China, fighting for sovereignty and resisting imperialism? How much of it is unique to the Communist Party of the current political makeup? How would you capture for people listening the strategic culture of Vietnam today? Indeed, Mike. And I think when talking about geopolitics in the context of Vietnam's strategic thinking, the geo is very, very important. That's how it is situated, conditions its thinking becoming, because it lies just next to giant China and shares land border, shares, you know, even have a maritime dispute. It is also situated so that it can position itself in between or straddling the Southeast Asian region divide, which is between oftentimes define it between continental and maritime Southeast Asia. So looking at Vietnam, the geo in geopolitics is very, very crucial. I think for many reasons, the historical experience dealing with China, with a much bigger power, the experience of power asymmetry, has shaped, obviously, the current thinking of the country's leaders. 
I think, though, even though the foreign policy claims to be constant and no major changes since the Donmoy era of reforms that started in 1986, and largely I agree there is a consistency and not much difference varying from the major line that has been adopted since then, which is opening and integrating with the world. I think in very recent years, if not months, there is very uh, the period of maturing in the strategic thinking. It is not necessarily articulated in any major new policy announcement, but I do think there are significant changes. And I would capture them as Vietnam obviously recognizing the challenges that the geopolitical situation is presenting with the more tense global outlook and great power competition. And perhaps Vietnam, because of its geopolitical situation, it is more vulnerable than some other countries in the region as well. So certainly there is a greater sense of challenge. But I would also emphasize opportunities. And I think the Vietnamese leaders do recognize the opportunities that come from the great power competition. And what we see recently in forms of diplomatic announcement, upgrades of relationship, including the one that U.S. and Vietnam have upgraded recently to comprehensive strategic partnership, and Vietnam's even positioning in the geoeconomic landscape with the new position in the global supply chain and whatnot, these I interpret as Vietnam acting on those opportunities and trying to capitalize on the opportunities. So on one hand, there is a very even conservative thinking among the Communist Party leaders in what they think of Vietnam and how Vietnamese relationship with major powers should be. But on the other hand, I think there is still also that very pragmatic and even opportunistic, but also nimble recognition of the changing landscape and they recognize that Vietnam is in good position and good juncture of time to capitalize on that. How would you guess that the Plipro or foreign affairs experts in Hanoi rank the challenges they face? I mean, I assume China's at the top, but how would they rank them? I suspect the U.S. is on there somewhere too, actually, despite the comprehensive strategic partnership. So how do you think the leadership ranks the challenges facing Vietnam? Yes. So in the past, there was this this saying that if Vietnam goes with China, they may lose the country. If they go with U.S., they may lose the party, which is regime stability, right? So I think that has been somewhat balancing that Vietnam's positioning, be very careful with both powers. But I would say in recent years, this is a little bit changing because I think the challenges, the constant challenges from China in terms of territorial dispute and even challenges to Vietnam's sovereignty has been greatly felt. And I think, as you mentioned, China remains the primary security preoccupation of Vietnam, certainly with China's muscular position and the greater military capability. But also another new challenge that emerged is that not only Vietnam is worried about a strong and aggressive China, but Vietnam is also worried about a weakened, potentially weakened China. If Chinese economy, especially post-COVID time, is relatively in a decline and it could be a fast decline, And the domestic politics in China are increasingly 
instable or very precarious, then I think Vietnam is even more worried because that will reduce an, a certain amount of predictability that Hanoi would have in, in calculus uh, towards take. Beijing's strategic decisions. U.S., on the other hand, as I mentioned before, one of the key challenges for a long time was a worry that U.S. and its allies, partners, or even the sympathizers of U.S. former South Vietnam regime can influence in some way the Vietnamese domestic politics or challenge it in calls of peaceful evolution or other ways of you know, challenging the regime's stability. But I think in, in recent years, that concern has been eased and the leaders in this Communist Party have been relatively well reassured that one, Washington does not have such ambitions. It respects Vietnam's regime as a self-determination and domestic politics doesn't want to meddle. I think that has been relatively eased. And therefore, I mean, they're, they're, that allowed for the further step of further development in bilateral relations. I think that being more trusting of the U.S. intentions that is not interfering with Vietnamese domestic politics that has helped in a strategic convergence between the two countries. I'm fascinated by that last comment. So was Hanoi relieved or reassured because of deft American diplomacy or because they decided actually the Americans can't do that much to us in the end? I think that there is not immediate. It was a gradual process. And I think for a long time, the U.S. officials have done a good job in reassuring both in the public announcement, as well as, you know, in the bilateral closed door meetings that, you know, those the, the U.S. is not seeking to change regime or democratize Vietnam. So that has been a gradual process. And I think that message has been amplified in the recent years as the two countries sought closer relationship. And I think also Vietnam's recognition and that there is a level of confidence within the high level of Communist Party that their control and regime is not so much insecure in that regard. So I think it's a mixture of both working for a long time. I can tell that compared to 2005, when we were getting ready for this historic first visit of a Vietnamese leader to the White House, there are many more people in Congress, think tanks, business who have regular interactions with their counterparts in Vietnam. And the level of Vietnam's diplomacy has also really increased significantly. And I suspect China has a little bit to do with that. I remember one of the things I had to do, I've told the story before, but for the Pham Van Kai visit was convince Hanoi they had to address religious freedom concerns. There were priests being arrested, house churches closed. And I went to Hanoi before Pham Van Kai came to Washington and the government did all that. They reversed some of the decisions later, but they did it. And I told President Bush, reported back, and he said, so Vietnam's more afraid of China than God, <laughs> which sounded about right. I suspect that part of the reassurance with the U.S. is being incentivized by China's behavior. So I thought China has played a factor in both accelerating the U.S.-Vietnam rapprochement as well as, in a way, slowing it down because Vietnam will always look to its shoulders and not wanting to send the message that is going too fast and too soon in improving the relationship with the U.S. with a fear of potential response and, or even retaliation from Beijing. One of the dominant themes on this podcast and in the conversations we've had has been analysts, officials from around the region 
reacting to this newly, or I should say increasingly truculent, assertive China. And I think the view here in Washington, which is valid, is it is really, as Mike was just indicating, less deft U.S. diplomacy that is really pushing a sense of urgency and alignment with the U.S. and the region, but Xi Jinping. However, I wanted to get your take on where you think China is still an effective and active shaper of events and dynamics in the region, because I think that is an area where we often underestimate the staying power of China. You put it really well. It's something that I've noticed, which is our Goldilocks theory of China, which is too strong. We don't like it, but we are also worried about a declining economy and the loss of opportunity that will lead to, especially for middle and smaller economies still dependent on China. So give us your sense with your Southeast Asian regional hat on. Where do you think China is doing well that we might underappreciate here in Western capitals, at least, in terms of its regional influence? Thanks, Jude. This is a really good question. I think Vietnam, in, in many ways, is a little bit of outliers from the general Southeast Asian group. And I'll mention one example that it has party-to-party -party talks, party-to-party dialogue, the Communist Vietnamese Party with the Chinese Communist Party. So I think it's, it's, it's relatively special for Vietnam. And in that way, one would assume that Vietnamese leaders know uh, perhaps China a little bit better. It's a question mark because that would not ease any of the anxiety that Vietnam has towards uh, China and Chinese intentions, right? But in general, I think even Vietnam, even with that apprehension on the security front, Vietnam also recognized Chinese development trajectory. Right now, we mentioned, you know, the post-COVID perhaps uh, storm on the horizon, but there is this development model that Southeast Asian, which are mostly developing countries, do look up to. And to what degree and whether they can replicate is another story. And because of that, China has really capitalized well on that and building its image and its position as so-called the leader of Global South, if we allow that notion and concept to, to return, uh, that China really harbors that ambition to lead so-called global south, right? And it does have ground to claim that in that respect. And that's something that Western capitals, as you mentioned, may not necessarily be in the position to really either compete or counter, right? And I think that is something even countries that are apprehensive of Chinese strategic ambition must admit. And that the Chinese economy and system is indispensable, interrelated with the regional economies as well. So even if there are reasons for U.S. and Western economies to decouple or de or now de-risk, it is not so easily done or not so easily to imagine even for the Southeast Asian economies or broader Asian economies because they're so intertwined, their economies, the supply chain, the network of, of economic relations, and of course the market, right? So, and another thing I would say that China's diplomatic and discursive tool, discursive campaign is relatively strong. 
Again, for Vietnam, there is always multi-layer analysis and whether they take it by face value or not is another story. But I think with Chinese very relentless narrative building of how it is a part of Global South, uh, one of the developing countries, and the one that is hoping to develop together with the, the region is a very strong one, right? With its Global Development Initiative, for example, this is another example of its diplomatic uh, discursive tool. And in China, whether you believe it's propaganda or not, it's very strong on capitalizing from opportunities to build that image, to reinforce that image. For example, most recently, the White House asked Congress for $100 billion for defense purpose to support Ukraine and support Israel and whatnot. In the Chinese newspaper, immediately there would be pictures and images juxtaposing that $100 billion of U.S. going to the arms and when, well, that's China using 100 billion or more to build infrastructure around the world. And that, of course, the timing was also coinciding with China's third Belt and Road Initiative Summit and whatnot, but it will always build on that juxtaposing of China as the one who's building, constructing, helping development, whereas U.S. is the one that is arming and looking for, for conflict. That's one of their narrative battle that is putting out, but quite relentlessly. Yeah, I appreciate mentioning the Global Development Initiative. It's something I've noticed. You have this troika of initiatives, the Global Civilization Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and the Global Development Initiative. We're obviously still somewhat scratching our heads as to what specifically something like the Global Civilization Initiative is. But I think you actually made an important point, which is part of this is just in the narrative domain. I think China is attempting to position itself as the builder of order as everything the United States touches is disintegrating into disorder, or at least that's the way China is framing the Middle East right now, obviously the war in Ukraine. With the Global Security Initiative, it's saying, see what the United States has done by pushing NATO into Putin's backyard. That's what caused the war in Ukraine, and now they want to bring this out to Asia. This is one where, again, your assessment I think is important that China is playing a very, very active game here that might not be fundamentally changing dynamics, but is certainly shaping optics in the region that I think is worth paying attention to. Let me just kind of shift gears slightly here and return to something you were just mentioning about Hanoi diplomatically trying to play or at least build relations with both the United States and China at the same time. This is a common theme across the region. I'm curious if you could talk about what the key pillars of Hanoi's approach to balancing its relationship with both Beijing and Washington. This is an important time to do it. We saw, as you mentioned earlier, the upgrading of the relationship with the United States to a comprehensive strategic relationship. I've seen in the news that I think Xi Jinping is planning for a possible trip to Hanoi in the coming weeks, or maybe it's been announced by now. So actively, Hanoi is trying to balance relations with both. How do you see it navigating this? And I I think the point is, as well, Beijing and Washington hear countries in the region say they don't want to choose. I'm not sure that has been fully built into either country's approach to the region. And there is something of an expectation that if push comes to sub, we will be expecting choices. 
So I'm curious how you think Hanoi processes that and is positioned to deal with that. Thanks, Jude. I think the narrative of choice has been defining the current strategic debates across Southeast Asia. And I have written about that and I have quite a few thoughts about it. It's on multi-layer. First of all, there's a discussion that by not making choice, it's a choice on its own. That also passivity is also a choice that one may willingly or not willingly take. And there's also a question whether the time matters because the window for making choice might already, also they might miss that window. And the third one is some countries in the region have made choices long time ago, and those are binding choices like Philippines or Thailand. They are treaty allies of the US. And the question is, do they stick to the choices they've made a long time ago with the new changing strategic environment, right? So there are all different, very many layers of the choice and it does look very differently from country to country. For Vietnam, I would say that the historical experience I mentioned earlier, the Cold War era, has dictated its reluctance to commit. And you call it omnidirectional diplomacy is really to make up for lack of friends in the time the Soviet Union collapsed and Vietnam found itself in a very disadvantageous position of having no friends, really. And so it doesn't want to repeat the mistake of, you know, betting too much or over-reliance on anyone in particular. So that omnidirectional diplomacy is also going beyond the ideological limitations and being more pragmatic and being friends with everyone despite and regardless of their political system. That goes to the multi-alignment that I also written about in the Foreign Affairs article and in regard to the upgrade of U.S.-Vietnam Comprehensive Strategic Partnership because it may upgrade to the relationship with U.S. to the highest in there in Vietnamese strategic lexicon. But at the same time, as you mentioned, it is going to reassure you also Beijing of its good relationship with China as well. Now, I think another point I wanted to make about the choice, and this is my personal conviction is as well, is that perhaps countries in the region don't see clear winners in the U.S.-China competition, and therefore they don't want to commit. I think there is a time that they can still benefit from the competition, from the greater interest from both countries. Vietnam is certainly experiencing that with interest and attention from both Washington and Beijing. Xi Jinping doesn't make many uh, foreign trips these days. So I think that in eyes of Vietnam is you know, a recognition of its importance. And equally, President Biden doesn't make many foreign trips or to Asia anyway. And he decided to skip the U.S. ASEAN summit and East Asia summit and instead went to bilateral for upgrading bilateral relationship to Hanoi. So again, Vietnam considered that as you know, recognition of its importance. So that kind of rivalry between U.S. and China and trying to gain influence of friends in the region really create opportunities for countries like Vietnam that do benefit and capitalize on their geopolitical position. And I think that is what is in mind of the leaders in Vietnam, that this is a, a window where Vietnam can be playing that omnidirectional and balancing game where it can ben benefit from the rivalry, but also at the same time improve relationship with both countries. So perhaps it thinks that we haven't got to the point where push comes to shove and it can maximize as much as it can 
during this period. And then this is the game they are playing right now. You just took the words right out of my mouth, which is, I think it seems like the omnidirectional strategy works when U.S.-China relations are at a relatively low level of tension. But if you think that this is really the early period of what is likely to be a protracted and an increasingly contentious geopolitical rivalry that sprawls out of the bounds it is now, that's where I wonder, and again, this is more of a question than a statement, but that's where I wonder if this omnidirectional balancing act is tenable because I do imagine or foresee Beijing and Washington now starting to put more demands on countries in the region. It doesn't mean you pick a side in terms of which block are you on, but I think there's going to be a number of specific concrete issues where increasingly there's going to be far less space tolerated by Beijing and Washington. But that's as much as a guess it is as a comment. I think so. I think that also goes to, that is in the mind of Southeast Asian countries, that intensification of competition that may lead too much tension that will push them into making unwanted choices. That is something that creates anxiety. I think it's not the lack of competition that would benefit Southeast Asia. It is a certain level of competition and certain level of predictability. And that goes to also Mike's earlier question in terms of making a hierarchy of threat perception or challenges that Vietnam and other countries in the region have. I think that a healthy level of competition is fine. The issue will become when it is either out of control, the mistakes can happen, or you know, an outright escalation, whether it is Taiwan contingency or others. Another thing I wanted to emphasize that we already kind of allude to is that because of the competition, the regional countries get away with many things. And for example, Vietnam, as we discuss it, is not in a very good in terms of domestic politics trajectory. The arrest of climate activists, for example, or certain more scrutiny in domestic politics is being, they're getting away with that because of the geopolitical advantage that they may bring to both powers. So in many instances, and this is being just one of them, Vietnam gets away with many things. For example, U.S. is interested in French shoring and perhaps building and assisting Vietnam with building up its semiconductor industry and elevating its position in global supply chain. But many multinational businesses have flocked to Vietnam with investments and relocation of their factories. But that also, U.S. is giving a blind one eye on the fact that many of the parts that will be made in Vietnam are from China, are sourced from China. So the question and the anxiety will be at some point down the line, perhaps, what if there are more punitive actions from U.S. when it comes to a stricter control of not only where the chips or semiconductor components are made, but where also where are they sourced from? So this is a little bit longer term consideration. You know how you sometimes meet people who say COVID was great? They got lots of exercise. They spent time with their families. They weren't commuting, so they had time to read books and go to the park. I think for Vietnam, strategic competition, as it exists right now, is fantastic. <laughs> Even more, I would say, than the examples that, that we just heard. And part of it is because the U.S. isn't going to punish Vietnam on semiconductor exports or French oil. They'll limit, perhaps, 
supply chain relocation to Vietnam, but they're not going to punish them. And China's limited in how much it can punish Vietnam because we're not in a game of absolute zero-sum competition. It's a competition for influence, shaping, alignment, and neither Beijing nor Washington are likely in the current environment to push Vietnam into a corner. And if the U.S. tried, Australia, Japan, Korea, everybody would tell us to stop. So it's a pretty good deal for Vietnam until it does become zero sum, until you're looking at a scenario where hard choices have to be made about technology decoupling, maybe about war and peace, because if we get to this point, because the alternative would be Chinese hegemonic control of Asia. And you tell me if I'm wrong, Hong, but I would guess when push comes to shove, if China were pursuing hegemony through much more drastic means than we see today, Vietnam's choice would be the U.S., doesn't mean Vietnam would go to war alongside the U.S., but I would guess the hierarchy is that if it does get to that point, and much of ASEAN would actually rather have the status quo than a coercive Chinese hegemony. And it's not something that's talked about in polite ASEAN company, but I, I think that's where a lot of governments would be if they think the U.S. and its allies were up to it. So am I wrong, or is it just not something you talk about in polite company in ASEAN? So that's actually how I concluded my foreign affairs article in about Hanoi's hedge. I, I to, knew I got it from somewhere. <laughs> so like you said, the preference is not to make choice. The preference is to be friends with everyone. And I also think that the degree to how strong China pushes and how much of the real threat it becomes to Vietnam's sovereignty will determine how much closer, how much further Vietnam will go with the US. Because at the end of the day, it's not about choices, pick A or B, because I like them more. But what serves me better, right? So I always said also that in the great power competition between US and China, Vietnam will always choose Vietnam. And if that means that one country or another will challenge its interests, its autonomies and sovereignty to the degree it needs to outright respond, it will seek any tools and any resources, any way to counter that. And that thing that optional thing, optional kind of opening window, has been included in Vietnamese policy announcement recently. In 2000, late 2019, Vietnam released a, a defense white paper in which, in addition to its traditional three no, which is no basis, no alliances, and no, you know, siding with one power against another, it added one maybe or one perhaps, which is in a situation where it is really challenged. It will seek all measures to protect its interests. So indeed, if, if really the scenario is as you presented, I think Vietnam will seek partners and allies that will help protect itself and its sovereignty. And if it is US and if it aligns with the interests, then that might, might as well be the case. Unlike the period when Vietnam was abandoned by the Soviet Union, still isolated by the US and felt it had no friends, today Hanoi has lots of friends. And I'd be interested in your assessment of how strong those partnerships are. I think Vietnamese strategic thinkers are nuanced enough to know that this is not a bipolar competition. It's, it's a multipolar region in many, many ways. And Japan, Korea, India, Indonesia, Australia have agency. All of these countries want to do more to Vietnam. So Japan is in polls the most popular country in Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, and the defense diplomatic economic relationship is 
mutually very positive. Korea is massively influential in Vietnam's economy. I was there in 2019 and I felt like I was in Samsung's second home. It's unbelievable. India is interesting, of course, because when you talk about the global south, India would claim no India can speak for the global south. This is all kinds of advantages for Vietnam in these other partnerships. But I, I wanted to drill down a bit. Vietnam's getting a lot from Japan and Korea, potentially from India and Australia. It's getting a lot. It's taking a lot. But do you think Hanoi looks at these relationships as opportunities to shape the strategic environment, to shape the U.S., to deter, dissuade China? Is it about getting capacity and investment and tourism? Or do you think that the thinking is more sophisticated and it's really about leveraging these multipolar partnerships to shape the strategic environment? One would think it's the latter, but when you look at the evidence, it looks like the former mostly. Yes, I think you hit the nail on the head, Mike, being there is a little bit of tension between the foreign policy and at the end of the day, the final decision making, which happens at the Politburo of the Communist Party, and ten, which tends to be more conservative and more putting brakes on deepening any relationship, especially on the strategic level. They do understand the relevance and importance of relationship, many friends, but there is and I've criticized that in the past that there is an issue of depth in them. You mentioned that Vietnam is almost like a sweetheart for many countries, regional powers from Japan, Korea, Australia as well, and European countries, not to mention the major powers we've mentioned before. But also, you know, Vietnam continues to have positive relationship and quite important relationship with Russia, despite all the tensions going on. So on one hand, I think that is at least presented as a success case that Vietnam is able to manage and straddle all the divide and all the tensions and successfully manage this relationship and be even being really, like we said, sweetheart of all major countries. This year, it celebrates a lot of big anniversaries with many important partners in the region. So a lot of 50 anniversaries of relationship with Japan, Australia, but also Singapore and other countries. So it's almost like a bumper harvest for Vietnam's diplomacy. Everybody's coming to Vietnam wanting to upgrade or deepen or invest more. And that's, I think, what the current leadership considered as a success. But the challenge there, the challenge of multi-alignment and many friends at the same time, is that there is a question of depth when if in the case of, of scenarios we've pictured, Vietnam does not have any mutual defense commitment from any country. So it has to rely on good diplomatic relations, on economic embedding their interests as well. That's another tool. But it does not have an automatic trigger of anyone coming to its help should it find itself in the worst case scenario of being attacked. So, yeah, there is a question of depth. It is good now. It is a, on a positive trajectory and the, the momentum is going on. But it's challenging to keep all relationship in such a good trajectory going on at the same time, especially if their interests are going to be at some times contradictory to each other. So there will be some pressure from different countries coming to Hanoi. 
So we've had a fascinating and in-depth discussion of Vietnam and geopolitics, and we have not mentioned once ASEAN centrality. I remember a few years ago, we did a CSIS survey of strategic thinkers in Southeast Asia and asked what emerging institution is most important to peace and security in the region. And Vietnamese experts picked the Quad, not ASEAN, the US, Japan, Australia, India Quad. So we're running out of time, but real quick, does ASEAN centrality matter to Vietnam's strategy? On the rhetoric, uh, you will hear that too. You hear the similar narrative of you know, ASEAN centrality as well as not wanting to choose. ASEAN has played a very important role for Vietnam to sort of re-emerge in the world after that period of isolation and then maturing its diplomatic capacity. So I think in a way it still plays an important role anchoring Vietnam's regional presence, regional efforts and amplifying to beyond but it is not as important as it used to be. Certainly now that Vietnam has had this big and extensive network of important partners and friends, ASEAN is not the only playing game in, in town for Vietnam anymore. It will remain central because of the neighborly relationship with other Southeast Asian countries and the platform it gives to Vietnam. But as you say, in terms of strategic issues, Vietnam is looking at individual players or institutions that really matters in the geopolitical game. So Vietnam chooses Vietnam. That's all diplomats from the U.S., Japan, Australia, Korea need to know. And if we understand that, this is a relationship that's going to be steadily reinforcing security and stability, I think. Dr. Hong, too, congrats on the new job. Congrats on the new baby. Congrats on all the great pieces in foreign affairs. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jude. It's been a pleasure. Always very stimulating discussing with you. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.